Section two of the Courage of the Commonplace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Courage of the Commonplace by Mary Raymond Shipman Andrews. Section two. Three years later, the boy graduated from the Boston Tech. As his class poured from Huntington Hall, he saw his father waiting for him. He noted with pride, as he always did, the tall figure, topped with a wonderful head, a mane of gray hair, a face carved in iron, squared and cut down to the marrow of brains and force, a man to be seen in any crowd. With that, as his own met the keen eyes behind the spectacles, he was aware of a look which startled him. The boy had graduated at the very head of his class. That light in his father's eyes all at once made two years of work a small thing. "'I didn't know you were coming, sir. That's mighty nice of you,' he said, as they walked down Boylston Street together, and his father waited a moment, and then spoke in his usual incisive tone. "'I wouldn't have liked to miss it, Johnny,' he said. I don't remember that anything in my life has ever made me as satisfied as you have today. With a gasp of astonishment, the young man looked at him, looked away, looked at the tops of the houses, and did not find a word anywhere. His father had never spoken to him so. Never before, perhaps, had he said anything as intimate to any of his sons. They knew that the cold manner of the great engineer covered depths, but they never expected to see the depths uncovered. But here he was, talking of what he felt, of character, and honor, and effort. "'I've appreciated what you've been doing,' the even voice went on. "'I talk little about personal affairs, but I'm not uninterested. I watch. I was anxious about you. You were a more uncertain quantity than Ted and Harry.' Your first three years at Yale were not satisfactory. I was afraid you lacked manliness. Then came a disappointment. It was a blow to us, to family pride. I watched you more closely, and I saw before that year ended that you were taking your medicine rightly. I wanted to tell you of my contentment, but being slow of speech, I, I couldn't. So, the iron face broke for a second into a whimsical grin, so I offered you a motor, and you wouldn't take it. I knew, though you didn't explain, that you feared it would interfere with your studies. I was right? Johnny nodded. Yes, and your last year at college was, was all I could wish. I see now that you needed a blow in the face to wake you up, and you got it, and you waked. The great engineer smiled with clean pleasure. I have had, he hesitated, I have had always a feeling of responsibility to your mother for you, more than for the others. You were so young when she died that you seem more her child. I was afraid I had not treated you well that it was my fault if you failed. The boy made a gesture. He could not very well speak. His father went on. So, when you refused the motor, 
when you went into engineer's camp that first summer instead of going abroad, I was pleased. Your course here has been a satisfaction, without a drawback, keener certainly because I am an engineer, and could appreciate, step by step, how well you were doing, how much you were giving up to do it, how much power you were gaining by that long sacrifice. I've respected you through these years of commonplace, and I've known how much more courage it meant in a pleasure-loving lad such as you than it would have meant in a serious person such as I am, such as Ted and Harry are, to an extent, also. The older man, proud and strong and reserved, turned on his son such a shining face as the boy had never seen. That boyish failure isn't wiped out, Johnny, for I shall remember it as the cornerstone of your career, already built over with an honorable record. You've made good. I congratulate you, and I honor you. The boy never knew how he got home. He knocked his shins badly on a quite visible railing, and it was out of the question to say a single word. But if he staggered, it was with an overload of happiness, and if he was speechless and blind, the stricken faculties were paralyzed with joy. His father walked beside him, and they understood each other. He reeled up the streets contented. That night there was a family dinner, and with the coffee his father turned and ordered fresh champagne open. "'We must have a new explosion to drink to the new superintendent of the Oriel Mine,' he said. Johnny looked at him surprised, and then at the others, and the faces were bright with the same look of something which they knew and he did not. "'What's up?' asked Johnny. "'Who's the superintendent of the Oriel Mine?' Why do we drink to him? What are you all grinning about, anyway? The cork flew up to the ceiling, and the butler poured gold bubbles into the glasses, all but his own. Can't I drink to the beggar, too, whoever he is? asked Johnny, and moved his glass and glanced up at Mullins. But his father was beaming at Mullins in a most unusual way, and Johnny got no wine. With that, Ted, the oldest brother, pushed back his chair and stood and lifted his glass. "'We'll drink,' he said, and bowed formally to Johnny, "'to the gentleman who is covering us all with glory, "'to the new superintendent of the Oriel Mine, "'Mr. John Archer McLean.' And they stood and drank the toast. Johnny, more or less dizzy, more or less scarlet, crammed his hands in his pockets, and started and turned redder, and brought out interrogations in the nervous English which is acquired at our great institutions of learning. "'Gosh! Are you all gone dotty?' he asked. And, "'Is this a merry jape?' And, "'Why, for cat's sake, can't you tell a fellow what's up your sleeve?' while the family sipped champagne and regarded him. "'Now, if I've squirmed for you enough, I wish you'd explain. "'Father, tell me,' the boy begged. "'And the tale was told by the family, in chorus, without politeness, interrupting freely. "'It seemed that the president of the big mine needed a superintendent, 
and wishing young blood and the latest ideas, had written to the head of the mining department in the School of Technology to ask if he would give him the name of the ablest man in the graduating class, a man to be relied on for character as much as brains, he specified, for the rough army of miners needed a general at their head almost more than a scientist. Was there such a combination to be found, he asked, in a youngster of twenty-three or twenty-four, such as would be graduating from the tech? If possible, he wanted a very young man, he wanted the enthusiasm, he wanted the athletic tendency, he wanted the plus strength, he wanted the unmade reputation which would look for its making to hard work in the mine. The letter was produced and read to the shamefaced Johnny. Gosh! he remarked at intervals and remarked practically nothing else. There was no need. They were so proud and so glad that it was almost too much for the boy who had been a failure three years ago. On the urgent insistence of everyone, he made a speech. He got to his six feet two slowly, and his hands went into his trousers' pockets as usual. "'Holy mackerel!' he began. "'I don't call it decent to knock the wind out of a man and then hold him up for remarks. They all said in college that I talked the darndest hash in the class anyway. But you will have it, will you? I haven't got anything to say, so's you notice it, except that I'll be blamed if I see how this is true.' Of course I'm keen for it. Keen! I should say I was. And what makes me keenest, I believe, is that I know it's satisfactory to Henry McLean. He turned his bright face to his father. Any little plugging I've done seems like thirty cents compared to that. You're all peaches to take such an interest, and I thank you a lot. Me! THE SUPERINTENDENT OF THE Oriel MINE. HOLY MACKEREL! GASPED JOHNNY AND SAT DOWN. THE PROPORTION OF FIGHTING IN THE BATTLE OF LIFE OUTWEIGHS THE BEER AND SKITTLES, AS DOES THE INTEREST. JOHNNY McLean FOUND INTEREST IN MASSES IN THE DRAB AND DUN VILLAGE ON THE PRAIRIE. HE FOUND PLEASURE, TOO, AND AS FAR AS HE COULD REACH, HE TRIED TO SHARE IT. Buoyancy and generosity were born in him. Strenuousness he had painfully acquired, and like most converts, was a fanatic about it. He was splendidly fit. He was the best and last output of the best institution in the country. He went at his work like a joyful locomotive. Yet more goes to explain what he was and what he did. He developed a faculty for leading men, the cold bath of failure, the fire of success, had tempered the young steel of him to an excellent quality. Bright and sharp, it cut cobwebs in the Oriel mine where cobwebs had been thickening for months. The boy, normal enough, quite unphenomenal, was growing strong by virtue of his one strong quality. He did what he resolved to do. For such a character to make a vital decision rightly is a career. On the night of the tap day which had so shaken him, he had struck the keynote. 
he had resolved to use his life as if it were a tool in his hand to do work, and he had so used it. The habit of bigness, once caught, possessed one as quickly as the habit of drink. Johnny McLean was as unhampered by the net of smallnesses which tangle most of us as a hermit, the freedom gave him a power which was fast making a marked man of him. There was dissatisfaction among the miners. A strike was probable. The popularity of the new superintendent warded it off from month to month, which counted unto him for righteousness in the mind of the president, of which Johnny himself was unaware. Yet the cobwebs grew. There was an element not reached by, resentful of, the atmosphere of Johnny's friendliness, Terence O'Hara's gang. By the old road of music he had found his way to the hearts of many. There were good voices among the thousand-odd workmen, and Johnny McLean could not well live without music. He heard Dennis Mulligan's lovely baritone and Jack Dennison's rolling bass, as they sang at work in the dim tunnels of the coal mine, and it seemed quite simple to him that they and he and others should meet when work hours were over and do some singing. Soon it was a club, then a big club. It kept men out of saloons, which Johnny was glad of, but had not planned. A small kindliness seems often to be watered and fertilized by magic. Johnny's music club grew to be a spell to quiet wild beasts. Yet Terence O'Hara and his gang had a stronghold. There was storm in the air, and the distant thunder was heard almost continually. Johnny, as he swung up the main street of the flat little town, the brick schoolhouse and the two churches at one end, many saloons en route, and the gray rock dump and the chimneys and shaft towers of the mine at the other, carried a ribbon of brightness through the sordid place. Women came to the doors to smile at the handsome young gentleman who took his hat off as if they were ladies. Children ran by his side, and he knocked their caps over their eyes and talked nonsense to them and swung on whistling. But at night, alone in his room, he was serious. How to keep the men patient? How to use his influence with them? How to advise the president? For young as he was, he had to do this because of the hold he had gained on the situation. What concessions were wise? The young face fell into grave lines as he sat, hands deep in his pockets as usual, and considered these questions. Already the sculptor life was chiseling away the easy curves with the tool of responsibility. He thought of other things sometimes as he sat before the wood fire in his old Morris chair. His college desk was in the corner by the window, and around it hung photographs ordered much as they had been in New Haven. The portrait of his father on the desk, the painting of his mother, and above them, among the boys' faces, the group of boys and girls, of whom she was one, the girl whom he had not forgotten. He had not seen her since that tap day. She had written him soon after an invitation for a weekend at her mother's camp in the woods, 
but he would not go. He sat in the big chair, staring at the fire, this small room in the west, and thought about it. No, he could not have gone to her house party. How could he? He had thought, poor lunatic, that there was an unspoken word between them, that she was different to him from what she was to the others. Then she had failed him at the moment of need. He would not be taken back halfway with the crowd. He could not. So he had civilly ignored the hand which had held out several times in several ways. Hurt and proud, yet without conceit, he believed that she kept him at a distance and would not risk coming too near, and so stayed altogether away. It happens at times that a big, attractive, self-possessed man is secretly as shy, as fanciful, as the shyest girl, if he cares. Once and again, indeed, the idea flashed into the mind of Johnny McLean that perhaps she had been so sorry that she did not dare look at him. But he flung that aside with a savage half-thought. "'What rot!' It's probable that I was important enough for that, isn't it? You fool! And about then he was likely to get up with a spring and attack a new book on pillar and shaft versus the block system of mining coal. The busy days went on, and the work grew more absorbing, the atmosphere more charged with an electricity which foretold tempest. The president knew that the personality of the young superintendent almost alone held the electricity in solution that, for months, he and his little musical club and his large popularity had kept off the strike, till at last a day came in early May. End of Section 2 Recording by Roger Moline